Well, good morning. This week we are going to do a little something different. And this is going to last for a week and we're going to cap it off next week. So this is going to be interactive here on several different levels and several different ways. So to introduce this, um, what we're going to do is as we go through the psalm, as you noticed, we've already prayed through the first few verses of the psalm. And as we go through, we're going to pray through the psalm this morning bit by bit. Then this week, kicking off our week of prayer is this sermon, but then Every day this week, or five days, I'm going to send you through the email a psalm to meditate on, to pray over, and to think through. Then as we do this, please make note of what happens in your life and things that happen to you, because next Sunday, you're going to have an opportunity to share what God has done for you. Um, Not necessarily um, a time of bragging about how you've accomplished certain things, but what God has done in your life this last week. I'm looking forward to a time of intimate fellowship with God this week with all of us, and then at the end, we will share what God has done this last week. We're going to come to a part in the psalm where it says, glorify your name, and for your name's sake. And what I'm seeking to do today and the rest of this week as magnifying God's name in our lives. So next Sunday, be prepared to share how God has magnified his name in your lives. And that can be men or women. We're just looking for uh, God to work in our church in a very strong way. Um, So as you are turning to Psalm 25, um, I want you to think of Um, a few things, but I want to first of all give credit to a few people that have influenced this sermon besides, of course, my wife. Um, Tim Keller has started me down this path. I've had help from a few um, dead saints, such as um, Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, and a live one, of course, Tim Keller, Um, and also one that you may not have heard of, but I enjoy a lot. His name is Graham Scroggy on the Psalms. So there are a few people that have influenced this and probably have a larger influence on this than I would like to give credit for, but please let's remember that nothing that I say is original. Um, I'm not very smart, so I have to uh, pull things from other people and kind of put them together, and so you get a collation of a lot of things. Um, this is a trust of a prayerful soul. You know, um, in my Bible, it has a title of Teach Me Your Paths. I didn't like that title. And those of you in my um, shepherd group know that I don't go by those titles at all. Uh, But trust of a prayer for soul is kind of more fitting for this. Um, And this psalm is a meditation mingled with prayers. And I like that because there will be times when we the psalmist is praying to God and writing that down, and there are times when he is talking about God and meditating on God himself. This is a good example for us. If you don't journal, I strongly recommend it. If you don't write out your prayers, I strongly recommend that. 
as you think through your meditations on God's Word and as you think through um, how you respond to them and how you react to God, write it out. The reason for that is several. It's beneficial because it helps you solidify your thoughts rather than ramble in your prayers, which I can tend to do. The other thing is, is that as you go through the year and you go back, say, I like to take the first of the year and glean my journal. So you go back at the first of the year and you see how God has worked in your lives and you can see the progression of how God has uh, made himself known to you throughout the year. And then anytime you fall into a sense of despondency, despair, or just, is God really out there? You can open your journal and see how God has worked in your life. It's very refreshing and it's very personal that way. So let me just recommend that you do that. Meditation and prayer are also two of the disciplines of the Christian life. Now, uh, I grew up in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and in the 70s it was very popular to say, I am spiritual but I'm not religious. It was very popular to say, I go into the woods and just meditate. And I always, uh, tongue-in-cheek, says, oh, so you go in the woods and meditate. Is that uh, with any other help, uh, like cannabis? Or is it this just kind of, you're just letting your mind wander and meditating on whatever your mind falls on? Or is there a structure to this? And they go, oh, no, it just meditate. I see. So you think about nothing? But anyways, I kind of let that go. But disciplines are part of religiosity that many people don't want to get involved with, but at the same time, disciplines are what keep us focused on Christ. Discipline is that part where once we get in the habit of doing something, disciplines can pull us back to the reality of who God is and what God has done. Without discipline, our day can be gone and we'll have forgotten to do something that is very precious to us, like pray. I have a son-in-law who on his phone has used, has pulled up a chime app. And a chime app, all it does is every hour on the hour, it gives you a little chime and it says nine o'clock or 10 o'clock or whatever the time is. And of course, his kids have gotten to the point where they mock it and they go, oh, it's 10 o'clock. <laughs> but for him, it's a reminder that it, the day is going away. And for him, he uses it as a reminder is, have I prayed yet today? And every time he hears the chime, he can either say, yes, I have, or I gotta get to that. And it's an hourly reminder of praying because prayer is a discipline. It's something that we have an opportunity to communicate with God with but it's a discipline that if you don't do it as a discipline, your prayer life becomes, the old term is uh, foxhole prayers or sending up a flare to God. And although that is a very important part of prayer to us, I don't want to discourage that, it is not the only way to pray. And if that is the way that we only pray, I think there is a room for growth in our Christian life as well as the other discipline is meditation that's used here. 
meditating on God's word. Now, one of the disciplines is also reading through scripture, uh, meditating, thinking through, and thinking of what this means, and then an application of how that means, what that means to me, how can I improve the, on this, or how can I apply this to my life, and not only just apply it, but how can I make this a part of my daily routine, my habits, where my thoughts are. Um, so this psalm is great because it does med- mingle prayers and med- meditations. In verses 1 through 7, we have uh, a paragraph, and I use this as it's basically, it's a very simple title. It's called A Prayer to God. But in A Prayer to God, he is um, saying to you, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. That first sentence there, uh, unfortunately, I used a lot of my time this week just thinking about that one phrase. And I could probably spend two hours on that one phrase, and I'm not going to. But think about what it means to lift up our soul. That's a Hebrew euphemism. It's a Hebrew saying. And it, and it means something um, more than just lifting up my soul. It's, sometimes we can almost be flip about that. But first of all, let's think about soul. What does that mean? Some of us are, when we think of a person, a human being, we think of a two-part being, and that is the spiritual and the physical. Some of us are three parts where we think body, soul, and spirit. There is biblical precedence for either one, and I'm not going to push either one, because we know that the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing, as it were, the spirit soul and the spirit. Um, So there is precedent for either one. But either way you look at it, the soul would be the spiritual side of us rather than the physical because we're not going to lift our physical being before God, but we're going to lift our spiritual being. If we're thinking of our soul, it could be our thought life because the difference between a soul and a spirit in my way of thinking it's just me, um, is that the soul can be our thought life and the spirit is our relationship with Christ. You don't have to like that definition, but that's one we're going to go on this morning. Um, So to you, O God, I lift up my spiritual side. I lift up my thought life. So David here is saying my thought life is going to rest in you. Um, the idea is not lifting up is meaning I'm directing my desire to. So it's I'm greedy for you. I'm counting on you. So to you, O God, to you, O Lord, the word is Jehovah or Yahweh. For so to you, Jehovah, Yahweh, I am greedy for, I'm thinking of, I'm directing my thoughts to, I am pushing my spiritual entity toward, I want you. And he goes on and says, oh my God, it's another word for God there, it's not Yahweh, 
in you I trust. I'm dependent on you. I'm acknowledging you. I um, it is a repeat thought of I lift up my soul and you I trust. David does that a lot. He says something and then he repeats it amplifying what he meant in the first time. So he's lifting up his soul. He's greedy for God. He's a directing his thoughts and affections toward God and then telling God, I'm trusting you. And then he says, don't let me put to shame. Now, how would he be put to shame and he's asking God to that for that? What does that mean? I don't want to be embarrassed, Lord. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Don't embarrass me in front of my enemies. I'm going to take this psalm and kind of rip it out of its historical context, put it in today's context, and I'm going to flip back and forth between the two because psalms are not just written for David, but they're also written for us to enjoy. So when David says enemies, he's talking about physical enemies. He has people after him with swords and spears and bows and arrows and, and wanting to do him in physically. We have that as well. But when we think of the Christian life, there's three main enemies that we think of, which are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we say that very quickly, but we have to realize that the world, the flesh, and the devil are really at war with us. They really are after us like David's enemies were after him. Now, granted, they don't have physical swords and arrows, but when we think of the flesh, the flesh is our self, it's our thought life. We get distracted so quickly that I guarantee you by 3 o'clock this afternoon I'll have forgot most of the sermon myself and I'll be focused on something else because that is the flesh warring with my, my spiritual side. We have the world with its cares, with its trials, with its pressures for us to do something else. And of course we have the the devil, who is not omnipresent, but he has lots of minions. I love that word, minions. But he has lots of minions that do his bidding. So we have enemies that are attacking us as real as the enemies that attacked David. So when we put that into context, we really do have, don't shame me in front of my enemies. Don't let them triumph over me. Don't let them be um, um, don't let them yeah triumph. Don't let them be successful in their attacking of me. So he is trusting God for what? As we meditate on, he says, I trust you. What is he trusting God for at this point? At this point in the psalm, he's trusting God for a protection, right? He's trusting God that God will protect him from his enemies. He's trusting God for help. He's trusting God for communication. He's trusting God to fulfill the greed 
and desires of his thought life, his spiritual life, his spiritual side, his inner man. I'm trusting you. Don't put me to shame. And then he says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. We have an advantage that David does not have. Our advantage is the canon of Scripture, right? So when David says, make me know your ways, he only had basically the Torah, and he might have had Joshua and Judges, and a little bit of the history he is in the middle of, so that, you know, Samuel and Kings and Chronicles was not written at the time. Um, I'm not sure even Ruth was written at the time. So he had very little of the Old Testament, but he had enough to know God's ways. We have the complete canon, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we have that so that we can know God's ways. And by the way, I believe in a closed canon. So in other words, God's verbal communication to us in a very specific way is closed. He's not going to inspire me to write something that will be added to the canon of Scripture. <laughs> Fortunately. <laughs> uh, I'm not that great of a writer. But God has closed the canon. So if you want to know God's ways, we have to know Scripture. We have to know what God says in Scripture. And how do we know that? We meditate on it regularly. We read it regularly. It's a discipline of the Scripture. A Christian life. So for us to be spiritual, we also have to be religious in that we have to read the Bible religiously, if I can use that term. We have to meditate on it, you got it, religiously. So make me know your ways, teach me your paths. Now there's a, a word that's repeated and if you do any kind of uh, inductive Bible study, you know that repetition of words means that there's something that needs to come out here. The one word is teach. Teach me your paths. It's in verse 4. But before that was the word ashamed, and that's used three times. If you look and says in verse 2, let me not be put to shame. And verse 3 says, none who wait for you will be put to shame and they shall be ashamed who are wantonly and treacherous. So he is saying that, don't put me to shame. None who wait for you will be ashamed, and only those who get to be ashamed are those who um, are wantonly treacherous. Let's look at that first little bit. Um, don't put me to shame is one. We talked about that a little bit. None who wait for you will be put to shame. The word wait is something that I don't like because when I want something, I want it right now. I don't want it to wait for it. But one of the virtues that God always pushes is patience. You think about the stories of Joseph and Abraham and all of the, the patriarchs. What did God do? He made them wait. He gave them promises. He watched what they did with those promises, and he made them wait. 
wait for the fulfillment of them. In fact, many of the promises to Abraham were not fulfilled till much later. We're in Joshua in our shepherd group, and we just read how the promises of the land God has fulfilled, and there is peace in the land. That's where we're at. So God fulfilled the, the promise, but it takes patience. How long was the, were the people of Israel in Egypt before God pulled them out? Around 400 years. 400 years before God, that's a lot of patience. That's generations of patience. And how long were the Israelites in the wilderness before they went into the promised land? 40 years. Um, so a lot of times when we are praying for God's will to be done or there's something that we are praying for, one of the things God teaches us is patience. Because those who wait on the Lord will not be put to shame. All right, what is the promise that we have that we are waiting for? What promise has God made to us that we are waiting for? The answer to that is God has promised eternal life with him. It's not yet fulfilled. We, it is and it isn't. It isn't in that we are not at home with him forever to be with the Lord. We are on this earth still struggling. So the promise that we have that will be fulfilled for those who wait is our future grace. Think about that when you are praying next time, that God's promises will not be put to shame for those who wait for him. And what has he promised? I think that's amazing. Because when you see this verse, it says, those who wait for you shall not be put to shame. None, it says none. And there's not a qualification, all those except for those who do this. All those except, there's no qualifications there. None is the underlying word there. And we can rest in that. And we can have hope with that. Okay. Ashamed. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Uh, ESV sometimes uses words that kind of get lost in the flow. What does wantonly treacherous mean? Um, those who are deceitful and do so all the time. Those who are purposefully, those who um, do so with an intent and an, to um, deceive. Um, those who um, do things and say things with an intention to put uh, harm to somebody else. Um, when I looked the words up, the dictionary used the idea of a prostitute who is wantonly treacherous. She's after one thing and one thing and only that's money. She'll do anything to get it and she'll deceive you, she will be treacherous, don't trust the prostitute. But it also means in business, it can also apply in uh, any other part of our lives. Wantonly treacherous, those who are, they will be ashamed. Notice God does not use a timetable. They will be shamed immediately? No, not necessarily. 
They may even prosper. But he says, those who are wantonly treacherous shall be ashamed. And then he uses the word teach. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Again, I repeat, teach me. Why are we wanting, why is that repeatable? Why is that repeated at all? It's because if you're at all like me, you're kind of thick-headed and need to be reminded time and time again. And if you're at all like me, you don't know everything in Scripture and you can't comprehend it all. So we take it little bites at a time. We try to remember it. We remember things as we go. But we have to remember that God says here, you, or David says, you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Have you ever waited for something even for a day? Have you ever waited for a day for an ice cream cone? Wake up in the morning think this would be a great day to have an ice cream cone. And you ask your spouse or your father or your parent or somebody you're with and says, let's have an ice cream cone today. And they say, great, we'll see. And you think about this ice cream cone and, you, and, and your anticipation builds and it builds and it builds. And finally after supper, you go out in the car and you go out to the Dairy Point or the Dairy Depot or Dairy Queen or wherever you get your ice cream and you get your or graters or if you're one of those and you get an ice cream cone. <laughs> But you get your ice cream cone, but you've waited for it all day long, and there's this anticipation that builds up, and you finally get fulfillment of that anticipation of that ice cream cone. And he says, for you I wait all day long. Now, David must have been in a particular situation where he's looking for deliverance a little quicker than 20 years from now, or 400 years from now. But he's also saying, I'm waiting for an answer from you. I'm waiting for you all day because you're going to save me from my particular troubles at this point, but you're going to save me totally. But the idea is also as an example. I think day is also can be used not just reality, a physical day, like 24 hours, but it can also mean a period of time. I'm waiting for you the whole period of time. I'm waiting for your answer for this. So he says, remember your mercy, O oh God, and your steadfast love. In the next two verses, he uses the word remember three times. So he's reminding here, God, remember that you are merciful. Remember your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. I'm going to take a little side trip here and talk to you about the Lord. God is a trinity. He is three in one. He is also one God. Tim Keller says, if God was just one God, it would be all about power. If God was just three gods, it would be all about love. Remember, when God cre created the world, he didn't have to because he existed eternally as the Trinity in perfect love for one another. And it was an expression of 
his love that he created this world. And it was an expression of his love that Christ came to save us because we rebelled against this love. And if God was just a trinity and not one, it would be all you need is love, and love would be the only thing we needed, and love would be the only thing that God is about. But that's not true. If we only focus on the trinity, we lose the balance of the unity and oneness of God, and the power, and the holiness, and the justice of God. And if we focus only on the unity of God, we would lose the love. So the whole thing has to be in balance. We have to have balance of the unity and the singularness of God as well as the trinity of God. We have to focus on the love of God as well as the holiness and justice of God. That is why of all the religions in the world, Christianity is the only one that has a God that is love. Think about that. There's not a God of love as well as holiness in any other religious religion in the world. And it is because of God's love for us that he can put up with us, put up with me. Because of my sinfulness, because of anything else. And so in verse six he says, remember your mercy. Mercy is getting something, not getting what you deserve. Right, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is, is getting what you don't deserve. So remember your mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. Remember that from of old, because I don't deserve anything but hell. And remember your steadfast love. Remember you are a God of love. For they have been from of old, they have been since the beginning of creation. Remember not the sins of my youth. When we are young, we do silly things, we do sinful things, and we do things that we probably aren't proud of once we have gotten older and kind of wish we wouldn't have done them. And sometimes we look back at them and chuckle, but at the same time, they aren't that great. They are sins. They are awful, and God abhors sin. So don't remember those things that I did when I was younger. Don't remember my transgressions. Anytime I've transgressed your law, remember, it only takes one transgression of God's law to send me to hell. That's it. So he says, don't remember those. But according to your love, remember me. And for the sake of your goodness, remember me. Remember me, O Lord, in the sake of your goodness. <clears throat> so now we're going to pause right now and reflect on this last paragraph. And Greg's going to come up and pray through this part of the psalm as we uh, are ready to move on. Let's pray. God, we come to you as a humble people um, who confess our ignorance and our foolishness, people who know everything and who our masters don't have to ask other people 
how to live their lives. And it's true that if any human acts in such a hypocritical way, they are lost. So we come to you this morning as sheep, asking you to guide us because we recognize you as the Lord, Yahweh, the self-existing one who needs no other. And we recognize your holiness and that you are the only being in the universe who does not need to ask for life or breath. And so we come to you as a people, um, broken, unwise, and needy asking you to make your ways known to us and to teach us your paths. Please guide us in your wise counsel. As a church, do this, for we are small and weak. As individuals, do this because we have broken relationships, we have broken hearts, and broken minds. So please guide us teach us. Don't let us lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways, let us acknowledge you and you direct our paths. Just like Harvey mentioned, God, it is hard to wait because we have prayed this prayer before and we have, we have for some of us, walked the walk of life a long time and we still feel like we need help. We still feel like you need to answer our request for direction. So please, kindly, in your power, give us grace to wait. A weak person demands things now. A strong person can endure the test of, of hardship for a long time. Just like Jesus, you, when you were here for 30 years, you endured temptation day in, day out. You waited on your Father to deliver you from this world, and you waited perfectly. You did not stumble, not even in the wilderness when no one was around. You did not stumble. So God, please help us as we wait to not stumble. Help us not to bring shame on your name by demanding our ways now. So help us to wait all day long. Remember that we're dust. We have not lived lives of perfection. That's why we need you to remember your compassion. That's why we need you to remember your faithful love. And I'm so thankful for your word because it, it, it shows us through the Old Testament, if nothing else, that you are long-suffering with your people and that your faithful love endures forever, for a thousand generations to those who love you and diligently seek after you. So we as a people need compassion. We need grace. So be gracious to us and, and bless us with your grace. Help us as a people to remember that if you act for us, it is because of your goodness. It is not because of our own merit, um, which circles around and lets us know that uh, even if you answer prayer, even if you um, bring to be the things that we have asked, it is not because we're good enough. 
It is not because we've checked the right boxes or have scored a 90% on the test. It is because of your gracious goodness alone. So remember your compassion, your faithful love. Don't remember our sins and do this all because of your goodness to us, your sheer goodness toward us. And we will be a humble people um, because of it. So for all of these things, we ask for your wisdom and your strength and your goodness. Amen. Moving on, we're now verse 8 through 11. Not there yet. Okay. Um, we're in, uh, it's spoken of God. Yes. God is upright. God is what we find the Lord to be. God is God. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. God is good, therefore he teaches us. God is good, therefore he gives us his instruction. God is good, therefore he, we have the canon as we know it of scripture. God is good, therefore we can know him. Good and upright is the Lord. He is bringing sinners in the way, not just those who deserve it, because if that was the case, none of us would be there, but sinners. And even though I am saved by grace, I am still a sinner. I still ask for forgiveness. I still do wrong. Um, and he instructs us, he instructs me in the way. The humble is not just those who are humble, but it, it's, it's, that's the word metaphorically. The word really there meant the poor and the afflicted. That's the true designation of that term, but ESV is taking the metaphorical term um, humble because somebody who's poor is considered to be humble. Somebody who's afflicted is considered to be humble. But, and we have taken the word humble and given it a much broader meaning, so therefore the word humble applies. But to get right down to it, those who are afflicted in any ways um, are who he leads in what is right. He teaches them. Those who are humble, he leads. He and all the Lord, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. That, remember, steadfast love is being repeated again. We've seen that before. Steadfast love was in verse uh, 7, and now it's in verse 10. And he added faithfulness to steadfast love. The paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. If you notice, there is a reactive and an action on the recipients of this grace. And the, the 
thing that has to be done by the recipients are to keep his covenant and his testimonies. So being spiritual without being religious is a non-sequitur, is a non-entity, non it doesn't work. Because we have to respond. We have to do. And that, in our language, is something that strikes a disconnect, a disconnect because we say that God's love for us is not dependent on us, and that is true. God's grace, we are saved before the foundations of the world. But his steadfast love and faithfulness are to those who keep his covenant and his testimony. So again, we have a balancing act that we have to go, go down. Yes, we are saved. Once saved, always saved. Yes, yes, yes. You prove your salvation through your actions. And so we have to balance antinomianism and legalism. We have to balance what God is doing in that um, part. Um, God's steadfast love and faithfulness are for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. Here is a sub-key. We're going to come to the main key that I want to talk about here in a, in a few minutes. Your namesake. If you follow the namesake throughout Scripture, it is for God's name. If you mark in your Bible, every time you see for your namesake or for God to glorify his name, highlight it. Do something. Write it down. Figure it out. Because it's a key throughout the path of Scripture that God is out to glorify his name. So, how does God glorify his name by doing something in my life? If I keep it to myself, do I magnify God's name? No. So, the whole purpose of this week, I'm, I'm trying to get this through here without being too uh, jarring, but we are going to study Psalms individually. We're going to pray individually but as a church, we're going to be thinking about the same psalm. So when we come together next week, we are going to magnify God's name. We have an opportunity to magnify God's name by sharing with one another what God is doing. So, so for your namesake, for God's namesake, we are going to go through psalms, five psalms this week. We're going to pray through them. We're going to see what God is doing, and we're going to magnify God's name through it. You get the individual and unity of our gathering at the same time. Hopefully you're getting this. Hopefully it's coming through. But he says, for your namesake, pardon my guilt for it is great. Yes. So he's talking about God, and we're going to pray this paragraph right here right now. Lord, you are good. You are great. You do instruct us in your way. You are ama amazing to us. You have given us scripture so that we can know you better, but we still don't fully comprehend. We know that you lead us through our affliction, through trials, but we also know that these trials are what you use to bring us back to you. There are times that you use 
confrontations and friction in our lives so that we can see you. We, you, you use those things because you are trying to magnify your name in our lives and we want to reflect that back and re magnify your name in all we do. Father, be with us as we see in your word your steadfast love, your faithfulness, as we count it out in our lives, as we journal it, as we think through all that you have done. We can see, Father, that you are the one who leads us, you instruct us, and help us to magnify your name and pardon us for your namesake. Amen. The next paragraph, we have yeah. 12 through 15, the man who trusts in God. And this is the one that I really wanted to spend the most time on, and I'm losing my time. Okay. So who is the man who fears the Lord? Who is the man who fears the Lord? It is the man whom God instructs in the way he should choose. The man who fears the Lord is the man who is acquainted with Scripture. Be simple. It is the man who reads the Bible. It is the man who meditates on his word. It is the man who understands God's ways. That is the man who God will, will lead. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The thing about this that we have to remember is that in the Old Testament, the promises were all about the land. So when you say, see, in the Old Testament, the guy's going to inherit the land, this offspring's going to inherit the land, it is a thing for God fulfilling his promises. God fulfills his promises. He's going to fulfill his promises in your offspring because of your well-being. You know, we do know in Exodus where God says that the man who is, walks according to his words through their third and fourth generation will be appreciative. And the cursing also goes to the third and fourth generation. So we have to be careful. But at the same time, the point here is the man who fears the Lord will be instructed in the way you should choose. That's easy because we know that. His soul is abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. And now the next, verse 14, is very, very um, important. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Aristotle said that's crazy. You can't have, be a friend of God because you don't have anything in common with God. Because friendship means you have to have something in common. I have friends who are football fans. We're not necessarily rooting for the same team because my team is not well liked in this area, the Denver Broncos. But at the same time, when we watch football, we're looking at each other and going, you too? You like football too? We have this in common. Or if you happen to like some of the things I like, it's a thing that we have in common, and friendship develops based on what we have in common. Hopefully, we all have Scripture and God in common here so we can all be friends, and we're all in the same boat, going the same way, and that's friendship. But here, it says the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Friendship with the Lord, we have to have something in common with him. What do we have in common? We have Jesus Christ. 
who was made in man, suffered as no other man has, gone through more affliction than any other man has, and so he knows. He has that in common. I spoke last time about um, despondency. He was the most despondent person out there when he said, take this cup from me. Very despondent in despair, so he knows what that's like. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He knows what being pain, in pain is. He knows what being beaten is. He knows what being scorned and ridiculed and spit upon and despised and rejected of man. I've not gone through nearly that kind of stuff, although in my head sometimes I blow some of my experiences up to be equal to that. That's just me kind of blowing things up because it's me. But God, Christ, has experienced everything we have, so we have that in common with him. So David is a man after God's own heart. Why? Not because he was perfect. Did he do stuff wrong? Yeah, a lot. Did it, but he was still known as the man after God's own heart. Why? Because he had things in common with God, and his heart was there. He wrote this psalm. He cried out for God. He remembered his covenants. He remembered his steadfast love and his desire. He lifted his soul up to God. His, he was greedy for God's attention and in his thought life. So the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And this is what pulled me into this psalm to begin with. Because God can be a friend, but he's still God. It's like having the president of the United States being your friend, but he's still the president. You can't get over that. He is, it's even, it's not, that's even a bad example, I'm sorry. But it's, um, the friendship of God is important. We have an intimacy with God. How do we get this intimacy? We know his promises. We trust in future grace. We trust in the word. And we trust that he will do what he says he's going to do because, because we are weak, we need examples. And so because he's fulfilled all the other promises he's given. You know, we called the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Testament or the New Covenant those are basically, covenant is just another word for promise. We have the old promises and we have the new promises. And God's fulfilled the old promises. And all of the old promises are fulfilled in Christ. And he's also given us new promises. And that new promise is future grace. And so the friendship of the Lord are those who fear him. And he makes known his promises to them. And I love that. I really love that. So my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. You know, I read that and I'm going, what's that mean? Now, I'm not a hunter and I'm not a trapper and I don't do all this stuff. There are times I'd like to. I fantasize about it, but, you know, I just don't have it in me to do that. Um, but pluck my feet out of the net, that's a snare, a trap. And it's basically God is going to not allow him to go down with his enemies on, uh, without triumphing. God will protect him. It's basically a protection. God will keep him. God will provide for him, but more than that, he will be, uh, we use the phrase, the shield and buckler, uh, he will be protection. When you look at the, um, uh, 
the, the, the Ephesians 6 where he says, uh, you know, the sword of the Spirit, he, there's the shield, shield of faith, and that is your protection. You have God's protection from any type of snares or traps. He will be a shield and keep your feet out of the net. So the idea is to encourage yourself. In verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Let's be encouraged. And because of this, we should give ourselves more cheerfully to prayer. Because if we are meditating on Scripture, reading Scripture, and praying, and praying Scripture back to God, and thinking through these things, we are going to be protected from disasters that will trip us up because our enemies set them for us. It's not to say that God will not put us in difficult times. If you think of David at this time, David didn't automatically become king. He avoided being with Saul for quite a few years. He was promised the kingdom, and I think it was 20 years later before he got it. So there's patience, there's trusting in God, there's being in his word, there's praying to God, and there's fellowshipping and being a friend of God. We're going to take time now and pray for this and pray through this. Father, we do ask that you will pardon our guilt for it is great. We will ask that you instruct us in the way. Help us to be more in tune to your word. Help us to be more in tune to scripture. Don't let our enemies get in the way, the enemies of ourself, the world, and the cares, and the devil. Help us to be instructed in the way we choose. Help us to make wise decisions as we think about uh, the blessings that you've given us and the way we use them. Help us to fear you, revere you, honor you with everything we do. Father, help our eyes to be ever toward you. Let our thoughts be ever on you and let our expressions be one that please you. Father, we know that doing this, you will protect us. You will keep us from snares that entangle us, and that we can do this for your honor and glory. Amen. In the next paragraph, it is a litany, not a litany, but a, a bunch of requests. And I love these because these requests are different than the requests that I usually make when I'm praying to God. My prayers to God are about illness, about health, about taking care of my family, my friends. Um, they're about physical things, but they rarely have to do with my heart and my soul. But think about this prayer, these prayer requests here. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. David was alone, afflicted, he was humbled, he was destitute. 
the troubles of my heart are enlarged. So bring me out of this distress. So God cares about the troubles of our heart. Our heart is a saying of our emotions. He is emotionally with us. The troubles are our emotions. Um, the things that you, the things that we have a great affection for, emotions for, are the things that motivate us for action. The things that we um, are affected by are things that really um, put us there. So the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Forgive all my sins. Even in the Lord's Prayer, it is said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Consider how many foes I, I have. With a violent hatred, they hate me. Guard my soul. Deliver me. Let me not put to shame. I take refuge in you. Think about these requests. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. He is, David is praying for integrity and uprightness. He's pre praying for his own person. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. Um, to take that and put it in today's context, redeem the church, O oh Lord, out of all of its troubles. Redeem us as a body, O oh Lord, out of all of our troubles. One last prayer, and then we're going to have Andy come up. Father, we have prayer requests here that we want to go through. Be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of our hearts are enlarged. Bring us out of our distresses. Consider our afflictions. Forgive our sins. Consider our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and how violent hatred they hate us. Guard us, deliver us. Let us not be put to shame. Let us take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve us, for we wait for you. Preserve us, O oh God. Amen.